We're going to hit the ground running today, um, and we're going to be covering a lot of material, so please, if you would, bear with me this morning. <clears throat> this morning, we're going to continue this look that we began just last week, um, looking at the doctrine of church membership, and we're going to kind of zoom in on one church in particular. And we're going to look at specifically at the, at the steps following belief, following salvation, and really, there's just, there's just three steps. Baptism, being added to their number, and then we could summarize it by saying devotion. So Acts chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 36 through 47. Acts two thirty-six. Peter concludes his sermon with these words, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Let's pray again. Lord, we are a needy people and we need you. And so I pray that, um, that I would decrease and you would increase here, Lord. Give us what we need from your word. Give us this day our daily bread. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's jump right in. As the Apostle Peter kind of concludes his sermon in verse 36. You can read the rest of the sermon, or at least what is recorded for us in the previous verses. As he concludes his sermon there in verse 46, or 36, he delivers what seems to be kind of a, kind of a fatal blow. He, he, he delivers a, one last punch to the Jews, these devout Jews that he is preaching to. He's just spent the previous verses proving to his listeners, proving to his audience there that Jesus was the prophesied Messiah, the Messiah that the Word uh, spoke of, that He was the Christ that the Jews have been waiting for, that we could even say He is the wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace that we read about from Isaiah chapter 9. He is the Savior. And He is now glorified at God's right hand, Peter says. And he lays the blame for Jesus' death squarely at the feet of these men, some of which were there, some of which had yelled, crucify him. This Jesus whom you crucified, he says. This is devastating news for them. These men were devout. They knew the scriptures. They knew the prophecies. They were waiting for their deliverer. And when Peter shows them from their own scriptures throughout the previous passage here, when he shows them from their own scriptures that Jesus fulfills all of the prophecies, they were overwhelmed with conviction. They were cut to the heart, Luke, the author here of Acts, tells us in verse 37. And he goes on to say, And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? The Holy Spirit in that moment had grabbed a hold of them, had showed them their sin, showed them their guilt, showed them Jesus' perfect righteousness, and showed them that if they stayed in their unbelief, they stood condemned. And Peter explains to them the only proper response 
to that conviction is repentance. It is to turn from your sin, run from your sin, and run to Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus, he says. And in his challenge to these, these devout Jews, repentance is the prerequisite for the forgiveness of sin. See, when he tells them to repent, he's not telling them to, to get their lives straightened out and get to church. That's not what Peter says. He's telling them to stop depending upon themselves and instead to put their trust, their belief, only in God and only in God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so he clearly says that repentance is a prerequisite for the forgiveness of sin. In other words, no repentance, no forgiveness. See, when the Holy Spirit is working on a person's life, He, the Holy Spirit, will bring conviction which will lead to repentance, bringing forgiveness of sins. And and true, genuine repentance will then lead to obedience. Look at how Peter paints this picture for us in verse 38. He makes it clear, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Conviction leads to repentance there. And then repentance leads to, we could say, three simultaneous events in the life of a person. These are simultaneous, so they're not steps. First, the new life, which is symbolized in baptism. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Also, at the same time, the the forgiveness of sin. This is that guilty condemnation being removed. It's called justification. He's declared that justice has been served. And then also, at the same time, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee of our inheritance of eternal life, as Ephesians chapter 1 tells us. So Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Baptism is one of the most important events in the life of a believer. Unfortunately, It's also become one of the most divisive topics in the church today. Uh, For centuries, Christians have fought over the various teachings about baptism, the mode of baptism, how is it done, um, the timing of baptism, when should it be done, the meaning of baptism, the effects of baptism, the list goes on and on. And so we're going to begin today uh, by looking at this command We're going to answer five basic questions that should help us to understand what the Scriptures teach us right here. So in this first part of the message today, we're going to answer these five questions. Who, what, when, where, and why? So the first is who. Who should be baptized? Look at verse 38 again. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, every one of you. So does this mean that every person should be baptized? It kind of does. Now, here is what I have to say. Listen to this very carefully. The question is, who should be baptized? And he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, We read it, it actually says, Paul writes that God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the same desire that Peter is expressing to these people who are listening to him preach. All of you, repent and be baptized. Now, we don't get this in English, but the word repent right there is actually plural. It's actually a plural word. So if we were living a little further south, we would say, All y'all, repent and be baptized. But then the words for baptized or be baptized, they're actually singular there. All y'all repent, and those of you who do repent, be baptized. That's what Peter is saying. So the question is, who should be baptized? The answer is fairly simple and straightforward. Every person who has genuinely repented. Everyone who believes All believers and only believers, every one of you, as he says, anyone who has made a a genuine profession of faith, said, yes, I believe these things. I believe in Jesus. I just want to point out here, there's no no pre-repentance 
baptism in Scripture. It goes repentance, baptism, not baptism, repentance. So next question is what? We'll come back to that in a moment. The next question is what? Notice that little word there, for, in verse 38. For the forgiveness of your sins. That's kind of an unfortunate translation when we look at it just at face value. It's kind of caused some problems. See, it seems to read that baptism is a, is a prerequisite for the forgiveness of sins. If I'm baptized, I will receive the forgiveness of sins. But that's, actually, that cannot be true. In fact, it means just the opposite. It actually means for, actually means on the basis of. Like I get paid for my work. You're baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So we could read the verse like this. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. See, repentance leads to baptism because when you repented, God forgave your sins. Let me put it this way. In certain church circles, um, in order to invite someone to Christ, often people feel as though the pastor has to issue an altar call. So come forward to the stage and receive Christ into your life. And that's fine. I, I guess I have nothing against altar calls per se. Um, but if true conversion has taken place, if true repentance and belief has taken place in your heart, then it's then it's taking place there in your heart before your butt left the seat, before you came forward. Because it's never about the actions, it's always about the heart. Our actions cannot save us. Christ saves us by granting us repentance. So then what is baptism? Well, literally, it means to immerse. It means to dip. It means to put in the water and take back out. It brings to mind cleansing or washing. See, in the, in the Jewish way of thinking, and these are all Jews here, in the Jewish way of thinking, where this, this imagery abounds in the Old Testament especially, and even in the Gospels of, uh, of people or, or even things being clean or unclean, ceremonially clean or unclean, and that is very common. And so a washing or immersing in water points at a, at a ceremonial cleansing that makes a person clean so that they can then draw near to God in worship. It's the imagery of holiness, being made holy. See, spiritually unclean people who are not able to approach God could not do so because they were defiled. They were unclean. Those of us who have been stained by sin are not able to draw near to a holy God. We're not able to. And so this act of baptism of going down into the water and coming back up out of the water is a, is a ceremonial washing, so to speak. It signifies, and, and that's all it does, it signifies, it represents the cleansing from all unrighteousness that repentance produces. Let me put it this way. John summarizes this in 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's what Peter means when he says, repent and be baptized. Confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you, wash you, baptize you from all unrighteousness. So, physical water baptism is an image of God cleansing us from all unrighteousness. That means that not only have we been forgiven of our sin, but we're also continued to run from our sin. We've been cleaned. We've been washed. And so we run from our sin. And so baptism represents not only our, our cleansing, but even a, even a whole new life, a whole new birth. And so who? Who should be baptized? Well, all those who genuinely have repented. And what is it? It's an image of God cleansing us from all unrighteousness. It's a, it's a public identification of our union with Christ. And then the third question here is when? Well, when it comes to, when it comes to spiritual baptism, when Christ saved us, it happens the moment God saves us. We've been cleansed from all unrighteousness when God saved us. That moment we went from death to life. 
But as far as the physical water baptism goes, I believe that this one is actually pretty straightforward. We believe that baptism is an event that happens following repentance. That's the model here. This is what we see here. Peter said, repent and be baptized. Repentance always comes first. Belief in Jesus Christ comes first. Turning from our sin and turning to Christ and trusting in Him always comes first. Then we display that belief through the outward expression of God's God's inward heart cleansing. His changing us, His washing us, making us cleansed from all unrighteousness. Baptism is important. Jesus commanded it in Matthew chapter 28 as a part of the Great Commission. Peter here in Acts chapter 2, as he preaches this, he connects this to uh, this matter of outward obedience, of baptism, with our inward repentance and faith. Repent and be baptized. Paul uses it in Romans chapter 6. I'll let you look at that at some point. He uses it to illustrate our identification with Christ. So yes, we believe that it's a symbolic action. But, But don't take it lightly. Because obedience is never merely symbolic, right? So where does baptism happen? Where should it happen? In Acts chapter 2, it actually doesn't tell us here where they were baptized. Just that they were. They're in Jerusalem. There's probably a pool nearby. Um, It doesn't even tell us here who did the baptizing, by the way. There's kind of two ends of the spectrum on this question. Many churches would say that baptism should only take place in the church and it should only be officiated by ordained clergy. And the other viewpoint is that baptism can be done by anybody, anywhere. It doesn't matter where you are. You can go to camp and get baptized. Here's where I stand. I think it's in verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Baptism represents not only our cleansing from our, all, all of our unrighteousness, not only our identification with Christ, but specifically it represents entrance into God's covenant community. It represents entrance into the church. It's a new believer standing up and saying, I too am a Christian. I've been cleansed of all my unrighteousness. And we could say that the precedent there in verse 41, Acts 2.41, is that it's to be done with the church present. We could say in full view of the church body. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. There's even more there. See, Luke uses this phrase, they were added that day. This is an important phrase. Added to what? Well, the context, I think, is pretty clear. They were added to the church. Added to their number. We could even say they were added to the church membership. They were a part of the church now. Historically speaking, you look throughout history, even in the New Testament, even especially in the book of Acts, in a very real sense, um, baptism represents not only being added to to the universal church, like all believers everywhere, but specifically being added to a visible church body. They were added that day, about 3,000 souls. They were being added to an assembly of the saints, a specific group of Christians, in this case, the Jerusalem church. These 3,000 souls that were added that day were now members of the church in Jerusalem. And we have a church right here, an assembly of believers. A church just means assembly. And so there will be times when we will baptize people into our church body. They will be added that day. They will be added to our number. And then probably the biggest question of all as we think of this, all of this, and I know I'm going really fast, but I think the biggest question of all is why? Who, what, when, where, and why? Why do we baptize? As modern Americans, we all have our own, uh, or we as Americans have our own customs and rituals. Some of them are strange, I'm sure, to outsiders, to those who are not Americans. Um, I think of the drive through maybe. But this one seems just a little bit strange to most people. This custom of Christians getting in a, an inflatable hot tub and getting baptized in front of everybody seems strange. So let me answer the question of why by saying this. We are, 
We are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because we have called upon the name of Jesus Christ for salvation. Look back at verse 21. This is a promise from the book of Joel. Verse 21, he quotes this and says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. This, this rite or, or ritual of baptism, it, it's not magical, but it does represent and, and picture for us what repentance is asking God to do for us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to take away our sin, to grant forgiveness, to be saved to be safe. So for a Christian to agree to baptism is for them to affirm in a, in a public act of obedience what's already taken place in their heart. Baptism is an expression of conversion. It's an expression of, of new birth, of, of new life. It's an expression of being made clean, of being washed. It's an expression of a, showing a heart in submission to Jesus' authority. He's commanded it by the way. But verse 41 tells us that it's not solitary. They were added that day. So to be baptized is to say to the church, to be baptized is to say to the church and the world, I'm a Christian. And to be added to their number is to say, and I'm not alone. And from the church's point of view, it's really the same thing. When I baptized Sean and Alex, Back at Easter, right here, right in that pool. Well, Sean in that pool. When I baptized them, we were saying to them, we were saying to each other, we were saying to the world, these men are Christians, and they're not alone. They're with us. In fact, it's even more than that. It's saying, as in the covenant, and he is our God, and we are are his people. So then this bears the question. What are the expectations now? What's next? What are the expectations of these members of the church, these 3,000 that were baptized and added to their day, to their number that day? What do we expect of them? What do we expect of one another? Well, on the one hand, it's actually almost too big to answer in one sermon, but I'm going to try. It's really all of the one another's in the New Testament. There's 50-something, 50 56, I think, distinct one another's in the New Testament. Things that we are supposed to do to one another, which really could be summarized in the phrase, love one another. But we can see here, beginning in verse 42, we can see how it played out in the church. And if we're going to summarize all of those one another's in one word, and really even verse 42 in one word, that word would be devoted, devotion. At this point, we can see that this, this commitment to Jesus in verse 41, their baptism being added that day, this commitment to Jesus, it begins to transform these new Christians as they, as they assemble together as the church, as they devote themselves to the teaching of the apostles, as they devote themselves to having fellowship with one another in their homes, and as they sacrificially devote themselves to meeting the needs of their fellow believers. We'll see this played out in these verses. And what we need to see from this, really from these next verses, the end of this chapter is actually a model of what I believe church membership should look like, of what we need to look like as a, as a collective church, as the assembly of the saints. Overall, this next section, um, in these verses, we can see four characteristics of a church that is being built by Christ. Four characteristics of a church that is being transformed by the gospel. A, a church that we would say is a true church, a, a genuine body of believers. Let me give you all four of these and then we'll continue. Um, a true church is a church that's being transformed by the gospel, is a learning church. It's a learning church, it's a loving church, it's a worshiping church, and it's an evangelistic church. Verse 42, look at this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And they devoted themselves... Have you ever known someone who is truly devoted to something? It's football season. You've known some people who are truly devoted to something. 
You know how when they're truly devoted to their sport, for example, they're up all hours of the day and night practicing. Many young people have had basketball hoops in the driveway, up all hours of the day or night practicing, devoted to their sport. People who devote themselves to something are persistent. They persevere. They keep at it in the cold. They keep at it in the dark, in the rain, in the heat. Against all odds, they are devoted. It's an ongoing passion for them. And this church is devoted to these four things in verse 42. They are devoted to the apostles' teaching. They are devoted to the fellowship. They are devoted to the breaking of bread. And they are devoted to the prayers. And there's a unity here. They're devoting themselves to these things together. They're devoting themselves to these things. They are of one mind. And what Luke, in the, the author of Acts, what Luke provides for us here is one of the best, I believe, one of the most clear summaries of life in the early church. I believe that this is, this is the model for what church is supposed to look like. Now, it's not all here. As time will go on, Luke and, and the other New Testament writers will explain it and clarify these four characteristics. And, and Paul, in particular, will write more about these things, and he's even going to correct several churches for, for abandoning them or doing them wrongly. But I believe that if we cling to these priorities, we will be doing well in God's eyes. Because in these four activities, much of the basic work of the church is found. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were a learning church. They were devoted to the scriptures. One of the most important things to remember as a Christian is that Christianity is actually a truth claim. It's a truth claim. It's a claim that something happened in history, something real, that Jesus died on a cross, was buried, and rose again from the dead. That's a truth claim. We believe that that actually happened. So for example, the Mormon religion is actually fairly easy to to debunk. Um, DNA testing has categorically proven that Native Americans are not the lost tribe of Israel, which is one of the things that they believe. They're not. The DNA is not connected. Uh, Someone once did a study and concluded that the the golden plates that Joseph Smith supposedly found these new scriptures of theirs written on, they would have had to have weighed over 800 pounds. But for the average man on the street Mormon, he doesn't care if those things are true or not. The average man on the street Mormon just knows what Mormonism has done for him and how it makes him feel in his heart. For Christians, this is dangerous. Because our truth claim is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he actually came back to life. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 17 to 19, he says, if Christ has not been raised, literally, physically, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died, are, have perished If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's the point. It is of vital importance to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to be a learning church. We need to be devoted uh, to the apostles' teaching as they were. Devoted to the scriptures. It's not enough to just say, you ask me how I know he lives, He lives within my heart. Peter would say, you ask me how I know he lives? The scriptures testify that Jesus lives. There are witnesses who saw them. And Peter would say, and I'm one of them. And I'm telling you he lives. Biblical instruction, being instructed, being taught by the Bible, uh, of the Bible, It was of vital importance to this new church community here in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. These were devout Jewish men who now were devout Christian men. And they viewed everything from their perspective of the Old Testament, specifically their perspective of Old Testament law. So they understood, for example, they understood that they needed someone to step in between them and God as a mediator. 
someone to go for them before a holy God and to intercede because they understood that God in his holy wrath would destroy them because of their sin. They understood that. The Old Testament teaches that very clearly and they knew that. They understood, these men here in Acts chapter 2, these brand new Christians, they understood that they needed a prophet who would bring God's word to his people. They understood that they needed a, they needed a priest who, who would represent the people in coming before God's presence with offerings and, and sacrifices. They understood that they needed a king who, who in submitting to God, would, would bring his righteous rule to govern God's chosen people. They understood that they needed a prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus fulfilled all of those offices simultaneously. But even more, they understood God's promises in his covenants throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. They understood that the temple, the temple brings God's presence to his people. They understood that the sacrifices bring God's forgiveness to his people. The list goes on and on. And now these devout Christians standing here, these devout Christians in Acts 2.41 who were added that day, these devout Christians are still dripping wet from the waters of baptism. They understood that they needed to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they're being taught by these apostles who had been with Christ how Christ is the fulfillment of all of this. How Christ is the, is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. And so they devoted themselves to understanding these things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And this instruction, the apostles' teaching here as they're preaching and teaching God's word, it's important because it shows us a couple of things. The apostles saw teaching as one of their primary responsibilities. This is important for us. It's important for me to remember. It's important for churches to remember. The first priority listed here is not visitation or administration. It's the apostolic teaching. It's the teaching of the apostles. See, the apostles, they were being obedient to Jesus' command in the Great Commission when he said in, in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's exactly what they're doing in these verses. They're preaching the gospel, making disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And they obediently held on to that command, that great commission to teach, even in the face of controversy. They held on to that command to teach, even in the face of church potential splits and division that came up in, in chapter 6 of Acts, if you remember, when they actually said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Teaching God's word was and is one of the primary responsibilities of the leaders of the church, of the elders, the pastors of Christ's church. Well, along with that, the believers continually listened to the apostles. They listened. They devoted themselves. They were persistent. They were up all hours of the night. They kept at it in the rain and the cold and the snow. Against all odds, they endured in devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. The apostles saw teaching as one of their, one of their primary duties, and the believers actually listened, which is what I love about this church. We actually heed God's word. And then finally, they practiced what they heard. This is evident in their unity. It's evident in their generosity, in their worship, in their reputation with outsiders that we can see here. The, the teaching of the apostles transformed everything about these new Christians. A, a, church, a church is designed to be a place that's devoted to learning, to learning God's word. It's a place of spiritual growth, and if that growth is being directed by the Holy Spirit, then it naturally will lead that church to becoming a, a loving church a loving church. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, I want to point out that fellowship here, it does not mean 15 minutes between Sunday school and church. That's not what fellowship means here. We know that. Um, 
Fellowship is koinonia. That's the Greek word. I don't know many Greek words. I don't pull them out very often, but I got this one. Koinonia. It's fellowship. It means sharing in common or, or, or even in communion. It's the idea of, a, of communion or commonality that we see in a healthy marriage, for example. When a husband and wife share everything, not just the checkbook, not just the house, but they share everything. Communion here, fellowship here, koinonia here is a shared life, both physically. So in marriage, we share financial resources. We're generous with each other, with, our, with all of our stuff, but we, we share everything. We share uh, our whole lives together, but there's also a genuine care for one another. Here in the church, they're seeing that needs are met. Physical needs, emotional needs, needs for friends. They're seeing that their needs are met. Spiritual needs, encouraging one another with the word. And in the church, this fellowship that they devoted themselves to, it's a shared life, both in attitude and in action. Here's what I mean. They shared an attitude. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. All things, not just their stuff. These new believers were unanimous in their belief. They all held that Jesus is Israel's crucified, risen, and exalted Messiah and Lord. And that as a result, they believed that they all were partners in the gospel. John puts it this way in his first letter. In 1 John 1, 1 1-3, he says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. He's talking about Jesus. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard and proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father. And with his son, Jesus Christ. We're in fellowship with Christ together. This is what fellowship is. It's this permanent partnership based on Jesus Christ. Because our shared life, this is why it's permanent. Our, sh- our life is, to, is forever. It's a permanent partnership. One that will be concluded in heaven. John MacArthur um, He defines this attitude of fellowship that we see there in verse 44. He defines it like this. He says, Fellowship is the spiritual duty of believers to prompt, push, and motivate each other to holiness and faithfulness. It's best seen in the biblical one another's, all those 50-something one another's in the New Testament. For a Christian to fail to participate in the life of a local church, he says, is inexcusable. In fact, those who choose to isolate themselves are disobedient to the direct command of Scripture. Here's that direct command. It's uh, Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. When the author of Hebrews says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. MacArthur goes on to say this. He says, The Bible does not envision the Christian life as one lived apart from other believers. All members of the universal church, the body of Christ, are to be actively and intimately involved in local assemblies, in the church. Obedience to all of the the one another commands of Scripture is impossible if you're not meeting with one another as partners in the gospel. And then secondly, this attitude quickly develops into action. Verse 45, let me read 44 and 45 again. And and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Their attitude of togetherness quickly moved into an action of togetherness. And, And this isn't communism. Can I say that? Do I have to say it? Probably don't. But this isn't communism. This is completely voluntary and and continuous. It's an attitude and an action. They say, what's mine is yours. This was generosity. They would sell things off and distribute the proceeds to, to, to any who had a need. Who, whatever that need was, whoever had that need. This is a loving commitment to care for one another. To care for one another. 
Now, we know that problems did develop. Whenever people are involved, sin will eventually rear its ugly head, right? We understand that. But remember that whenever these problems come up, they always begin the same way that this does. They begin in the heart as attitudes, and then, and then they spread toward outward actions. And so a church that is a learning church devoted to the apostles' teaching leads to a church that is a loving church devoted to the fellowship. But at the center of this is a church that's worshiping. A worshiping church. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now this first phrase, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, it can mean either of two things. It can either mean having a meal together, dinner together, or it can mean the Lord's Supper, communion. I think it's both. I think the best way to understand this is to describe the church like this. The the believers here, they regularly shared common meals together during which they remembered Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and the establishment of the new covenant. Remember, it was, it was during the Last Supper that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. During that last meal together, that last Passover celebration that he had with his disciples, he instituted the Lord's Supper. The, the bread and the cup were already on the table. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And so these early Christians received their food together with glad and generous hearts. And they proclaimed the Lord's death until he comes. The breaking of bread was a communal act of worship. They did this together. See, in communion, all believers meet on common ground at the foot of the cross. At the Lord's Supper, all believers meet in common ground at the foot of the cross. And we are united in him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17, Paul asks a couple of rhetorical questions. He says, this cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is worship. Again, in MacArthur's comments here are helpful. He says this, Communion calls for self-examination, purging of sin, thus purifying the church. Nothing is more vital to the church's ongoing, regular confrontation of sins in the lives of its people than the thoughtful expression of devotion to the remembrance of the cross. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Nothing is more vital to us killing our sin than we as a church taking communion seriously. And look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. These Christians in Jerusalem, they broke bread uh, both when they were gathered in the temple and when they were in each other's homes. And so they shared meals. As they shared these meals, they proclaimed Jesus' death. Notice the attitudes again. Glad and generous hearts, praising God. It was a joyful worship, and this no doubt was prompted by the presence of the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, the guarantee of their salvation. This is the communion of saints. And then related to the breaking of bread, they devoted themselves to the prayers. These were both public and private prayers. They were both the traditional Jewish prayers, like reciting the Psalms together, and it was individual personal prayers, like what we pray. Luke doesn't tell us what they prayed except to say in verse 47 that they were praising God. They worshipped as they, as they prayed, as they broke bread, both in, in their fellowship, in their, in their care for one another, in their communion. They were proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. They did this continually. But notice, they worshipped together in another way also. Did, did you see verse 43? I skipped it. Go back to verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The miracles that Jesus had performed, the signs and wonders, they were now being performed by the apostles. The signs and wonders served to validate, served to prove that Jesus is God's promised Messiah. That's why he did miracles. And now they are 
proving the ministry and the message of the apostles, that it's coming from God. A true church is a worshiping church that regularly proclaims Jesus' death through communion. It's a church that depends on Him in prayer and offers up praise to His name, all while standing in awe of who He is and what He is doing. We stand in awe of who Jesus is and what He is doing. Have you done that recently? Have you stood in awe of God and what He is doing? Even here? Even here at Logansville Church? Have you just stood in awe of what God is doing? I shared before, I shared with some friends, I don't remember who. Fourth of July, 2012. Honda shut down, people were on vacation. 29 people at church. I stand in awe of what God is doing here. And not just the numbers although I stand in awe as we stand and watch people come in that narrow doorway and say, who are all these people and where are they coming from? We stand in awe of what God is doing in their hearts. We've prayed for kids. God continues to answer our prayers. Don't stop praying for kids. We've prayed for teenagers. God has continued to answer our prayers. We've prayed for godly men and women, and God has continued to answer our prayers. We stand in awe of who he is and what he is doing. These are the expectations of church members. I want to say it again. A a true church is a worshiping church that regularly proclaims Jesus' death through communion, depends on him in prayer, offers up praise to his name all the while standing in awe of who he is and what he is doing. And then the final expectation of church members here, and this is really quick. We can file this under the same heading of devotion. It's evangelism. They were an evangelistic church. Look at verses 46 and 7. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Their good reputation impacted their witness, and the cycle from verse 41 is repeated. Do you see it? It's repeated there at the end of the chapter. The cycle from verse 41. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This new community of Christian believers, they were finding favor. They were finding thankfulness within the unbelieving Jewish community. That's what that means. Within all the people, the people around them. Why were, these, why were the unbelievers grateful? That's what favor means. It means grateful or thankful. Why were they grateful? This whole passage, this whole chapter, really, but especially the end of this chapter, is about these two commands, the two greatest commands of Scripture being lived out. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we see here. That's what the church is doing here. They're loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they're loving their neighbor as themselves. And the Jewish unbelievers living in Jerusalem, they're seeing in this new Christian church, in these brand new church members, a genuine love for God and a genuine love for one another. They're not seeing it in their own community. The Pharisees are not modeling this. They're not seeing it in the world. The Romans didn't act like this. The the Roman magistrates, the Roman soldiers that they interacted with every day, they did not act like this. They're seeing it in these Christians. They're seeing it in these church members. Can you see the correlation in our society? When they look at the church, they're seeing care and provision. When they look at the church, they're seeing worship and prayer. They're seeing teaching and fellowship, and God is adding to their number. Christ is building his church. 
I said last week that church membership is how the world knows who represents Jesus. Church membership is how the world knows who represents Jesus, and, and this is how they see that. A true church, a church that's filled with members who represent Jesus, is a, is a church that is devoted to being a learning church. A church that is devoted to being a loving church, a worshiping church. And as a result, she will be an evangelistic church. A church that shares a reason for the hope that is within them. These are the simple expectations of church membership. And it takes all of us doing our part to proclaim to the world, He is our God, and we are His people. Pray with me. Lord, all that you've done in just in this little church, you've done it. Lord, we live by your grace. We praise you. We praise you that your promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That that promise, we can even see it coming true in our own lives. We can see it coming true as people come to know you and trust in you, believe in you, as we run from our sin and run to a Savior, a Savior who loves, redeems, a Savior who accepts us, cares for us, adopts us into his own family, calls us brothers, friends, a Savior who gave his life for us, and so we praise you for the work that you've been doing. We ask, we ask, Lord, that you would give us new minds, transform the way that we think, that we would be this kind of church, Lord, that is devoted, that is devoted to your word, devoted to one another in the fellowship, devoted to one another in the breaking of bread and the proclamation of of Jesus' death until he comes and devoted to you in dependence in the prayers. That as a result, Lord, you would transform us. God, we thank you, we love you, we trust you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.